All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. Back in the Minor Prophets. Amos chapter 3, this is the chapter that we were in the last time we were in uh, Amos. We were in the first eight verses. And so just as, you know, if you, if you recall, the first two chapters is Amos' first message to the powers that be in Bethel, meaning he's, he's addressing primarily those in Israel. Chapter 2 ended with a judgment against Israel, and chapter 3 then picks up with Amos' second message that just expands on that. So the judgment that was referenced and spoken of in short, so to speak, in chapter 2, is now, uh, is now elaborated upon uh, significantly in chapter 3. And so we'll begin in verse 9. Proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say... Assemble on the mountains of Samaria, see great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, As a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. So not a cheerful message. And, and one that obviously comes with some rather graphic details. As we begin, though, I've got a question for you. What do the following men have in common? John Demjanjuk, Laszlo Satari, Hans Leipschitz, Vladimir Katruik, and Alfred Stark. Okay, obviously they got ridiculous names. No, I mean, I mean, obviously they have hard names to, to pronounce. Okay, that's one. They're all men. I heard some sassy pants say. All right, yes, they're all men. Anybody else? What do they have? What do they, what, what do they have in common? What do these What do these men all have in common? Anybody know? European. Okay. Tennis? Okay, no, all right. Tennis? No, they're not tennis. It's not tennis or ping pong. Not sure which. Ar- artists? Pickleball? Okay, no. Scientists? No. 
Friends of Luther, okay, all right. Ah, they do sound German. Now, I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you some of the things these, these guys have in common. One, uh, they're, they're all over, they were all over 90 years old. Uh, number two, they all lived in, at one point, or resided in the United States, with a couple even becoming naturalized citizens. Number three, they were all Nazi war criminals. And that's not even the whole list, by the way. They say at one time there could have been hundreds. Some have even estimated up into a thousand Nazi war criminals living in the United States and Canada. We're well aware of the reputation of South America being a haven for them. But, but it, is, it is a fascinating list. In fact, that first guy that I mentioned, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name right, John Demjanjuk. I mean, he, he, in the 50s, he became a naturalized citizen, became a small business owner, raised a family. It's a Nazi war criminal. One of them was in the concentration camp helping to run the gas chamber. Another one of these men was responsible for executing well over 100 Italian soldiers. Lived into their 90s. Many of them enjoyed the rights and privileges of living under the Constitution of the United States. You know, there's a couple of things about this kind of thing. One, of course, you know, on one hand, how fascinating, right? There's a sense in which that's fascinating. Like, this isn't Hollywood. This is real. These guys did this. Now, they've, all of them, I believe, have died since being discovered. Some were discovered and arrested, but what you find, in large measure, very few of them ever faced earthly consequences for their actions. And that really bugs us, doesn't it? In fact, that not even be a strong enough word, right? We find ourselves just almost baffled by the possibility that, that you could have Men who committed such atrocities live, living in our, being our neighbors, right? We, we, we might have bought stuff from them. We might have, uh, we, we might have been customers. They, they might, we might have barbecued with them. I don't know. I mean, to think that they live their lives unaccountable. Of course, that, that's, that's from an earthly perspective, right? I mean, those, those of us with a biblical theological worldview, we know better to escape earthly consequences is in fact no real escape. I mean, we, we recognize that, that in terms of judgment, in terms of being held accountable for sins, yes, God has provided earthly means of doing that. He provides governments and he, He's provided means by which wrongdoing could be judged and consequences should be brought upon criminals and wrongdoers. But we recognize there's a far greater and far more lethal form of accountability that comes from the hand of a sovereign God. And there's no way you can read the minor prophets without coming away with this message. And I've, I've said all along in this study, this is, just, this is just what we have to prepare our hearts for. God has seen fit to give us 12 books. They're not the only ones. The other prophets talk about it too. But 12 books that are intensely focused on, in some degree, God's judgment. If you, if you were to read them through one after another, again, it's not the happiest part of the Bible, right? 
He said, these aren't, these aren't go-to verses. It, it, there's a lot of these verses. My guess is uh, Amos chapter 3 and uh, where, where, was, uh, where was the verse? Amos 3, um, the, one, the one about the shepherd and the verse 12. So you've probably never written Amos chapter 3, verse 12 as like a verse for somebody to look up about the shepherd taking the, the two legs out of a lion's mouth and a part of an ear, right? It's not, that's, these, these just aren't the most comforting passages, but God wanted to make clear that in his word, though we are enamored with his love and his grace and his mercy, we, we dare not forget the holiness the righteousness, and the justice of God. And the minor prophets serve as this witness to this. And they serve as this witness not just to the world, right? Well, one of the things that is striking about books like Amos and the Minor Prophets is God is also concerned that we recognize He is willing to chastise His own people. Now, the purposes are going to be different, and there, we'll get into that uh, to some degree as we finish out this chapter and as we look more in the book of Amos. But that's really what's going on here in Amos chapter 3, uh, a passage again that we turned to um, the, 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 la- the last time that we were in Amos, this is going back to before Christmas, and, and looking at this expansion of the message being delivered to Israel about the judgment that is to come. And when we look at Amos chapter 3, we find this, and this is in your notes. I mean, this is a chapter that just reinforces the fact that that though God's people do enjoy a special relationship with God, that that does not mean that they, they are free from experiencing God's chastisement against their rebellion. It's, it, it, it's, it's not like the, you know, like what we might think about the, 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 the rich kid that's got a rich and powerful dad, and every time he does something wrong, he just goes to daddy, and daddy gets him out of trouble, all right? This is not the nature of a relationship we enjoy with the Lord. He's not like just a rich daddy that can get us out of trouble. God, God will bring to bear upon us consequences for sin. And the minor prophets kind of flesh this out. And so we are looking at several ways God's judgment is described in the book of, of, of Amos, in chapter 3 in particular. And when we know that there are four Four ways this is described and, and the, the nature of it. And we looked at the description of judgment in verses 1 through 8. So we, and especially looking at it from a theological perspective, uh, some important elements of the nature of God's judgment. So tonight we're going to move on, and you've got notes there. You don't even have to fill in blanks. They're there for you. So we've already looked at a description of God's judgment. Now number two, the second feature Amos draws our attention to is the witness to his judgment. You might even can use that plural, the witnesses, to his judgment. So look again, chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. So, so keep in mind how verse 7 and 8, how, the, how that previous passage ended, kind of this introduction to this message. Um, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion is roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And so following right up on that, Amos is called then to to announce this. So verse 9 says, 
proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria, see great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her. Now, notice that language, proclaim, assemble, and see. So this, this is language this, uh, that carries legal connotations. especially the language of assembling and seeing. So this is like formal language. They've received a summons. The people of the palaces of Ashdod and those in Egypt, it's almost like they've been subpoenaed, sort of, all right? Sort of, all right? They've now been called to God's God's court. And so this this is an official proclamation that these are to come and to bear witness to what's about to come, to, to what's going on in Israel, and then what God is about to do in Israel. Now, here's what's interesting, though, about the witnesses God calls. He, he's not calling faithful Judah, who, of course, really wasn't all that faithful, but perhaps in their minds, right? He's not calling, he's not ta- calling on, on God's faithful remnant to come and to witness this. He mentions Ashdod and Egypt. Now, now, we've talked about Ashdod before. Anybody remember? This is the capital of Philistia. So he's calling on the Philistines and the Egyptians as witnesses. Come to Samaria. Come to the mountaintop. In other words, I'm, I'm, I want to show you something and I want to make sure you've got a good seat. Come to the mountaintop, that way you can view all that is going on. And he calls the, the Philistines and the Egyptians. Now, if I were to go around the room and say, name for me the biggest enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. I don't know what other names you'd put on that list, but my guess is all of you eventually would say, well, the Egyptians and the Philistines, Right? These, these, these are uh, perennial enemies of God's people. In fact, sometimes in the prophets, references to like Ashdod or Egypt are even just not necessarily literally talking about Philistines or Egyptians, but like symbolically speaking of that which opposes God. They almost stood as a symbol for everything that opposes God. And these are the ones he's calling to act as witness. Come and Come and see. He's, he's, so he's, he's calling on them to come and to witness. Well, really, there's two things going on here. When a witness is being called, especially biblically speaking, the, the witness could be called to either testify to the veracity of charges that are being made, And so we know the law speaks of this. The law did require that if somebody was accused of something, there needed to be two or three witnesses, right? Those witnesses would have been called. They would have spoken to their knowledge of the events for whatever the person's being held accountable for, right? Now, does God require this uh, necessarily in order to judge people? Well, no. No, He does not, right? God is His own witness. However... He is calling on Egypt and Philistia to witness something. So this is not necessarily a witness 
to verify the charges, but he is calling on them to witness, and I would say they are being a witness, meaning they, they are called upon to, to give a, a visible uh, testimony to what's about to happen, to the judgment that is to come. That's the witness that they are being called to. He wants them to, pro- he wants, he's proclaiming to them, come and see. And notice he says, to see the tumult in their midst, and to see the oppression that's in her. So, God's calling on these nations to come and witness the judgment to come and to witness the depths of their depravity. Now let that sink in for just a minute. God is calling on the Philistines and the Egyptians to give witness to the depravity of Israel. Does anybody think that Philistia and Egypt were righteous, God-fearing nations? Do you think these nations might have known a thing or two about oppression, violence, idolatry, immorality, rebellion, depravity of all kinds? Yes. They would have been world-renowned, all right? I mean, in some of these cases, like the Philistines, I mean, you're talking about child sacrifice at times in their history. You know, we're well aware of, of, of the Egyptian system and just all of it being depraved and wicked and sinful and, and a rebellion against God. These are the people God saying, I want you to give witness to their depravity. How bad must the circumstances in Israel be that God's calling on two pagan nations to witness it. Whoa. That's pretty serious. And it does give us an indication here of just the, the, the depths to which Israel has sunk. Now, I, I just I want to, this is not necessarily a, a, a rabbit trail per se. I, I think it is connected, but Let's maybe just think a little bit more personally and in a contemporary sense about this. I think God's people need to always be aware of the potential to mirror and mimic the world around them. I would love to say, no, one defining quality of God's people is they will always and forever not look like the world around them. I wish that were the case, but it's not. This is not relegated to just Israel. This is not just a unique thing among God's people uh, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago. This is an ongoing reality. And by the way, I think personally speaking, right, for individual Christians, we should be on the lookout for the ways in which our life simply mirrors or mimics the values and principles of the world. So that the world could look on and say, yep, I recognize that. Yep, I recognize that. Yep, that's exactly what we do. And what's heartbreaking is we see these statistics. They come out every year about church life, about there often being very little ethical distinctions among those in the church and those outside the church. Whether it's values and principles that we hold or actions in which we are engaged. The, the, the very often... now. I should say something about those surveys that are often done. They often don't take into account who we really would identify as Christians, right? 
Sometimes you bear a reputation for people who claim to be Christian that are in no shape, form, or fashion actually Christian, right? You recognize that. So whenever a survey comes out and says, well, here's what it's like in the church, uh, take that with a grain of salt because how they define church probably isn't how you and I define church, right? And how they define Christian, I can promise you, is not how I define Christian very often, all right? But at the same time, do we not all have examples and experiences of the ways in which Christians have exhibited worldliness to such a degree that unbelievers look on and say, you say you follow the Bible. You say, you say you believe in this particular ethic or system or values, and it doesn't seem to show up. Here's where this really becomes a problem, though. I think, I think in some ways, there are churches that embrace it. There are churches that are all too willing to put on the face of the world while claiming to share the words of Jesus. And that's never going to work. Because the world only and always corrupts. I, I remember years ago, my previous post was serving in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And I remember being in a meeting with a group of pastors and there, there were, in, the, in this particular association, and, and back in the day, all right, back then, um, there, there was some trouble in this association. Not all the churches uh, were like-minded churches. I know it's a shocker, right? Now, there's one church. It's like on a main thoroughfare. It for sure was a liberal church. One of the features of their architecture that was so striking is they, they had this giant, like, entire wall-sized window that when you drove by on the road, you could look in and you could see, and it was, it was a window into the back of their sanctuary. So you could, you could see into the sanctuary, and, and the, the glass was just as clear as day. It was just as clear as day, and I remember hearing the pastor of the church comment on that particular piece of architecture. Because it wasn't stained glass, it wasn't frosted, it wasn't tinted, it was clear. And I was in a meeting and this pastor actually said this, we made that window on purpose so when the world looks in and sees us, they can see we're no different than they are. Now, you might think, oh, pastor, surely he meant... They, they just wanted the world to see they were just regular people. That's not what he meant. It's not what he meant. He meant this is a place where they'll find acceptance. It's a place where they'll, they'll, they'll find people who won't, won't you know, hit, and hit them over the head with the Bible, won't expect all these things from them. No, they'll find a place of acceptance and welcoming. I mean, it's something if, if God calls on Ashdod in Egypt and says, come see what they're doing. Won't you, I'm gonna, you're going to give witness to what is, what is their sin and what is their depravity. It's a striking kind of language here that God would use. But God's making a point. God is making a point to Israel. And God is making a point through Amos. Can you imagine being these, these Israelites, the powerful in Bethel, hearing Amos say this, that God is going to call on their historic enemies 
to stand on the mountain and watch their demise. To not only watch the tumult that's going to be in her, but to watch them wallow in their depravity, right? Their oppression, all the things they do that are a violation of God's word. Now, now notice how he goes on, though, to say this. Here, here's, here's the other thing they're witnessing too, I mean, or maybe a further clarification. Verse 10, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Now that phrase, they do not know to do right. Don't be mis- misled by that. You might read that and your first thought is, well, well, That seems unfair. It seems unfair that God would hold them accountable if they don't know what to do is right. Maybe maybe their real problem is ignorance. Maybe that's their problem. That's That's not what the phrasing means. Really what God is saying, for those who no longer know what to do, that is right. That's what he's getting at here. He's not describing people who are somehow ignorant. They've had centuries with the law. That they've, they've had prophets throughout their history who've made it clear, abundantly clear, about their sin and depravity, their violations of the covenant. This is not an ignorant people. You know what this phrase is describing? This phrase is describing a group of people who have become so entrenched in their sin, who have become, who are so Deep in their depravity, they no longer recognize it's wrong. In fact, here's really what it's getting at. Not only do they not recognize it's wrong, they think they're right. This, by the way, is always the end game of sin. This, this, is, the, this is the final stop, so to speak, in that train to destruction that sin takes you on. Because sin not only erodes at your uh, desire and strength to resist temptation, uh, but but sin, if left to flourish, becomes such a corrosive and corrupting influence that not only do you get to a point where you're just all in and indulging in it, and, and not, not even able to discern right and wrong, but the final stop on the train is when people say, no, this isn't actually sin. That's the ultimate deception. When sin takes them to such a place that they don't even know. They don't even know what's right, and they're no longer able to identify what they're doing as wrong, and actually want to identify what they're doing as right. Glad that doesn't happen today. It's funny, it's almost as if a book that was written 2,000, 3,000 years ago is applicable to today. Maybe it's not such an ancient and outdated book. Maybe it does perfectly identify the human nature. Because this is what we do. I mean, would you, could you not write those words about the very culture you live in now? Yes. Yes. In fact, I, I, I really think this, this is described as when we get into the New Testament. You have the verse there, though you may be familiar with it. This is how Paul ends Romans chapter 1. This, this first shot at describing the depravity of humanity. 
And here's how it wraps up. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. 2,000 years old? Yeah. Two seconds? Yes. I mean, what a prophetic description. Again, this this is what we see in the nature of Humanity, and it's what, it's what we see happening even in Israel. They're reaching this place, but they can't even discern. They don't know to do right. They're so entrenched in doing wrong. And again, who's God talking to? Ashdod in Egypt. That's who he's talking to. That's what He's calling on them to witness this. And then then says the Lord, the rest of verse 10, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Again, you, are you kidding? If I were to ask you, name for me the most violent cultures described in the Bible. You'd probably go straight to Egypt. You'd go to Philistia, right? You'd go to these, you know, the, 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 the groups that lived in Canaan. But what's God saying? Here's what they're doing in Israel. And is this not kind of a a, a poignant and and vivid kind of illustration? What should you be storing up in palaces? Treasures, right? Riches, resources, not just, you know, I mean, it could be big piles of gold. That's what I see in my mind, but that's just in the movies, all right? But I mean, what should be in palaces? Well, resources to fund the functioning of the kingdom. Instead, what are they storing up? Violence, bribery. You go and you look in their safe houses, and this is what they've got. Now, I think probably God has a double meaning in mind here. This is what they're storing up, because whatever resources they do have, they probably obtained by violence and greed. This is how they got them. They got them via violence and by robbery. So this this is what they have stored up for themselves. And again, he's talking to Philistia, and he's talking to Egypt. This is what God's people have done. They've, They've stored this up. This, and what does it mean, by the way, or at least what would it imply if they are storing it up? That they've got an abundance of it. What kind of things do you store? When do you save money? When you have money to save, right? When, when, do, you, when do you save up things? When you have things to, when do you stockpile? When you have extra things to be able to stockpile? What is this? They're not just engaging in a little bit of violence, a little bit of robbery. They can store it up in the palace. Because it's so ubiquitous. It's so ever-present. It's just a part of who they are. And again, he's calling on these folks to witness this kind of sin, but also the judgment to come. Verse 11 then describes the tumult that will, will appear. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. 
those things that you obtain by violence and robbery, what you do to get them is what you're going to get to have them taken away. Now, this is, this is almost certainly referring to the Assyrians, and this is what is going to happen. Assyria is going to come in, and, and they, they, are, they are going to be quite destructive being the, the arm of God's judgment, though they don't know that. The Assyrians aren't aware they're the arm of God's judgment, but that's what they will be to fulfill what's being said in Amos and some of the other minor prophets. This, by the way, is another bit that should not come as a surprise to them. The only thing God is doing here through Amos is summarizing what He told them centuries earlier. You've got there on your notes, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 through 52. Keep in mind the book of Deuteronomy. Who wrote it? Moses. When did he write it? You guys want to mumble these things. I have just really destroyed you all from answering questions. All right, right before they enter the promised land, so right at the end of the 40 years of wilderness wandering, right before he's going to die, nearly every adult that came out of Egypt has either died or is about to die. All right, that moment, that, that moment where Joshua is, you know, it's being written just right before Joshua is about to take over. So here they are at the end of their 40 years, they're, they're near the, the, the river that you know, God's going to separate for them again so that they can go through to Canaan and uh, you know, the walls of Jericho will come down. So the reason I put it in that context is so that you realize we are, that, that was centuries before the book of Amos. Centuries. So we're talking about something Moses wrote while they're wandering in the desert. Here's what it says. Keeping in mind what is Deuteronomy, but a book that outlines what it looks like to be faithful to the covenant and the blessings that ensue, and what it looks like to be disobedient to the covenant and the consequences that will come. So now he's going to talk about consequences to disobedience. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine or olive oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs of your flocks until you are ruined. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down, they will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you. They can't throw up their hands and say, God, this is unfair. We never knew. When did you ever tell us? No, no, this, is, this has been all, all too real and known to the people of God. Their entire history. This has always been right there. And so God does then call on these nations to witness the judgment that is to come. Now here's something else that's interesting here. And that is the fact that when God judges, and I'm not going to say always, but I, for sure the description, whenever we have judgment in the Bible, God never calls people under judgment. He never, he never engages in judgment where he does not also have witnesses to it. It's always a very public act on God's part. It's, it's never privatized and personal. 
meaning God's judgment always comes with a theological point. And that point is not just that God judges sin, though that is part of it. God is always saying something about himself when he judges, and so he calls witnesses to it, calling people to see, to give witness to what is about to happen. So this this is not just going to be some kind of private moment. No, this is going to be known. God's going to make himself known. I, I, I know it's not something that we often like to think about. I mean, we prefer to think about God making himself known through creation, right? That's lovely. It's, it was a beautiful, beautiful sunrise the other day coming up over the, the water. When I was coming into church, it was, it was magnificent. The colors, the sunset tonight, right? I mean, these are beautiful things. You've been in beautiful places perhaps around the world. And yes, we love to think, oh my, how God shows himself. I don't think we appreciate that when God destroyed the entire population of the world except eight, God was also revealing himself. When God killed firstborn children, he was saying something about himself. When God burned Sodom and Gomorrah to dust, he was saying something about himself. These acts of judgment are a revelation of God. And we do well not to forget them, even as God's people. I'm not making light of God's grace and God's mercy. Obviously, I I love those things, and God gives witness to those things. In fact, this is probably what a passage like this should do. What would we like God to say we are to be witnesses of? Here's what I mean by that. If God were to call on people and say, come, come on, I want you to come over here and I want you to look into the lives of the folks at Tabernacle and I want you to see what they're doing. Is God going to call the nations? Is God going to call the people of this community to look upon us to see depths of depravity and disobedience and coming chastisement? Or, because I think this is also what God does, that God would call upon those to witness faithfulness, obedience, trust, godliness, holiness. This is what God wanted in his people, that they would be a witness to Ashdod and to Egypt about what it looks like to live in covenant fidelity with the one true God. Let it be said about us that if God were to call witnesses to view our lives, it would be a witness to righteousness, not a witness to sin and chastisement. But God does do both of these things. And so we would do well then to remember. All right, next week we'll continue with the rest of, uh, of Amos chapter 3, two other elements then of judgment that are described here. Also with interesting facets to them, we'll explore uh, as we consider it next Wednesday night. So hold on to these outlines unless I decide to make a little bit more sausage. All right, between now and then, and if so, then um, you know, I'll give you a, uh, a fresh bit of it next week. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering your people. What what a blessing it is to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. A blessing to be able to pray. A blessing in knowing that that, that here you you have gathered people who love you and love your word and love your gospel and long to see you intervene and do your good and gracious work in this world. 
Father, make, it, make us mindful of the ways in which you work, not only to, to reveal who you are in love and in grace and in mercy, but also in righteousness and in power and in holiness. And may we as your people be found faithful. May, may we as your church be, be a faithful church, an obedient church, a holy church, set apart unto you, living in a manner that is consistent with the glory of the gospel that has saved us. Thank you for these who've gathered, who are willing to be a part of this time. I pray that they would know your blessing upon them, your hand upon them, that you would grant wisdom, and that you would guide, that you would provide in the days to come. And then we ask that you would gather us back together again, that as your people we may worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.